praise this morning. Thank you. Uh, they're listed in, uh, page numbers are here in your uh, pew Bible if you want to follow along. Um, I'm first going to read the Galatians scripture, then I'm going to read uh, from Mark, but a little shorter than the, uh, than the verses here. So from, from Galatians chapter 2 and verses 11 through 16. When Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in this hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter in front of them all, You are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? We who are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. And now from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 10, I'm going to read uh, verses 17 through 22. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered, no one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. You shall not defraud. Honor your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, all these I have kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said, go sell everything you have and give it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. At this the man's face fell and he went away sad because he had great wealth. May God add to our understanding of the scriptures as we've heard them this morning. Well, uh, it's great to be here with you all again. My name is David Pascoe. I know some of you, some of you may know me. Uh, I always appreciate the opportunity Pastor Phil gives me to uh, come and uh, bring the word um, two or three times a year here at Mount Olympus. Today feels like spring, doesn't it? But I'm kind of thinking back to Christmas. Actually, back to last Christmas Eve when uh, our family gathered around the TV set to watch one of our favorite movies, A Christmas Story. Hey, hands up if you don't know 
the epic tale of Ralphie Parker and his quest to get a Red Ryder carbine action 200-shot range model air rifle with a compass in the stock and this thing that tells time. Even though everyone from his mother and his teacher to a department store Santa warn him, say it if you know it, you'll shoot your eye out, right? That movie, that movie. One of my favorite scenes in that movie is Flick and the flagpole. Remember, Flick has been triple dog dared uh, by his buddy Schwartz to put his tongue on the school flagpole because he doesn't believe it will freeze and stick, which of course it does. The bell rings, calling everybody back to class after recess, and Ralphie and the rest obey the bell and leave Flick stuck to the pole. Miss Shields, the teacher, realizing that Flick is missing, paces the aisles and asks, has anyone seen Flick? He was at recess, wasn't he? Ralphie, have you seen Flick? And Ralphie looks back at her in silent, wide-eyed innocence, while the voice of adult Ralph Parker, the narrator, says, Flick? Flick who? None of Flick's best friends own up because none of them wants to get into trouble. When Flick returns, freed from the frozen flagpole by the fire department, a white gauze bandage covering his protruding tongue, Miss Shields intones, Now I know that some of you put Flick up to this, but he has refused to say who. But those who did it know their blame, and I'm sure that the guilt you must feel would be far worse than any punishment you might receive. Now, don't you feel terrible? Don't you feel remorse for what you have done? Well, that's all I'm going to say about poor Flick. At which point, the voice of adult Ralph, the narrator, once again cuts in saying, adults love to say things like that, but kids knew better. We knew darn well it was always better not to get caught. I was reminded uh, of this attitude, you know, if I don't get caught, I did nothing wrong. I was reminded of it this, this last week as I thought about this piece from Galatians that we heard read this morning. So in that passage, Paul is proud of the fact that he confronted Peter with um, flip-flopping like Mitt Romney, or as someone pointed out to me after this morning's service, many other politicians... <laughs> Uh, but flip-flopping on, on a really important issue of the day. Um, the issue on which Peter, by the way, Peter means the rock, on which Peter the rock flip-flopped is this. As we know, Jews who observed the law of Moses had many restrictions on what they could and couldn't eat, and they also didn't eat with Gentiles because Gentiles' eating practices and things that they ate were considered unclean by Jewish law. Peter, in his missionary work, had come round to Paul's way of thinking that the message of Jesus, his message of salvation, was not just for the Jews, but was for everyone, regardless of their religious belonging. And he'd also apparently uh, been persuaded that it wasn't necessary to become a Jew as an intermediary step for a Greek or a pagan um, to joining the church. So Peter had been happy to compromise his Jewish ways to the point 
that he had been eating and drinking with Gentiles in Antioch, maybe even uh, sharing the Lord's Supper with Gentiles. Until, that is, he received a visit from, from, from some of the church leaders in Jerusalem, where James was in charge. So this group firmly maintained that male converts must first be circumcised, as was the Jewish custom, before they could join the church. This powerful and influential lobby in the early church is who Paul refers to as the circumcision group in that reading. We heard the circumcision group. The ones that said, no, you must obey the law. If you're male, you're circumcised first, and then you can join, you can join the church. So Peter, faced with being found out by his peers from Jerusalem, who are going to report back to James, what does he do? What does Peter do? He takes the Ralphie Parker way out. Who, me? Eat with Gentiles? I don't know what you're talking about. I'm a Jew, and I obey the rules. If they, if they want to join the church, then they'd better obey the rules too. Get circumcised like the rest of us. Until then, I'm having nothing to do with them. Peter flip-flops. He ducks for cover and hides behind the law. And that's why Paul calls him out in this particular passage. Of course, you know, Peter had done this kind of thing before, right? All four Gospels record that when Peter was confronted in the courtyard of the Jewish high priest on the night that Jesus was on trial, he denied knowing Jesus. When they ask him in John's Gospel um, if he's one of Jesus' disciples, he replies, I am not. And Matthew's Gospel, it's even harsher. Matthew says, Peter began to curse and swear, I don't know the man. Peter was afraid of being caught. But it broke his heart that he'd been such a coward as to deny his master. And each of the four Gospels also ends this scene with Peter weeping bitter tears. So don't you think Peter would have learned his lesson from this? And yet, here he is again, now one of the foremost leaders of the church, lying to save face. Paul calls him a hypocrite in his letter. Well, how can this be? I think the answer is because although we call them saints, men like Peter and Paul were just ordinary human beings, just like us. People like you and me who, when we are afraid of being caught out, in something, we duck and cover, and very often behind the rules. We fall back righteously on the letter of the law as our defense. And let's not forget that Paul had his faults too. I mean, the same Paul who's crowing about his confrontation with Peter in Galatians admits in Romans 7.15, I do not understand what I do for what I want to do I do not do, but what I hate, I do. And if you remember, Paul got angry at Barnabas for wanting to take his nephew, John Mark, on their missionary travels, and this caused a split between the two that lasted for years before they were finally reconciled. As I said earlier, we call them saints, 
uh, but they were just ordinary human beings with their faults and failings. Peter lied to save his neck, literally in the high priest's courtyard and figuratively now in Antioch. Paul was too proud to offer a hand of reconciliation to one of his closest companions. We can imagine them both righteously indignant and stubbornly refusing to find another way out of the situation they found themselves in. So where does grace come in all of this? Here I am asked to preach on a sermon series on grace from the book of Galatians. Where does grace come? Well, let's take a look at the Mark reading first. Um, As we talk about grace, I've usually heard this, I don't know about you, usually I've heard this reading about the rich young man in the context of sermons about money. You know, the rich young man was so in love with his own great fortune that he couldn't give it up and follow Jesus. So we Christians should be careful how we view our money so we're not consumed with materialistic ways that prevent us from living a good Christian life. You know, that kind of thing. But uh, as I was preparing to talk to you today, I saw this story in a very different light. I saw it for the first time as a story of rules versus grace. Now, here's what I mean. Um, The rich young man asks Jesus what he needs to do to guarantee his salvation. Do what the law says, is Jesus' first response. And he kind of ticks off the Ten Commandments, or some of them. But but, But I've obeyed all the rules all my life. Isn't that enough? The man replies. At this point, Mark says, Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said, go sell everything you have and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. So when Jesus looked at him and loved him, I believe he saw that what this man needed most was to break free of those rules that he thought would guarantee his salvation and instead act out of grace. That was the only thing this rich young man was missing, living life by the rules, doing everything the Ten Commandments and the law of Moses required him to do. just wasn't enough. There was no room for grace in this man's life. And grace was exactly what he needed to put his heart and soul into the way he lived his life. It was following the rules but lacking grace that prevented him from following Jesus. On my bookshelf at home is this interesting little book. It's titled, If Grace Was So Amazing, Why Don't We Like It? It's written by, uh, it's written by Don McCullough. Anybody know that name, Don McCullough? Don McCullough, yeah, Don McCullough. Um, is a Presbyterian pastor who was once president of Salt Lake Theological Seminary, which is a a school of theology we had for a number of years here in Salt Lake City. Uh, John gives an example of the difference between living by the rules and living by grace, Um, and he actually uses marriage as an example. Let me just read you a little bit um, here from what he says. Just think about it this way. What if you and your spouse 
only related to each other through agreed-upon rules. What if you only celebrated your marriage on the anniversary of your wedding, only honored one another on birthdays, only said, I love you at 7 a.m. every day, only made love every other Saturday evening? You might be scrupulous with these rules, never breaking them, but eventually they wouldn't mean much. A loving relationship can't be sustained by law. God's rules, as helpful in their way as they are, had to be transcended. So, along came Jesus. And the Gospels make clear that one reason he was nailed to a cross was because he challenged the system. He was too free, too cavalier about the law, too much a rule breaker. He embodied a love that was far larger than could be contained in any rules. A love far greater than than can be contained in any rule. I like this explanation of grace. It puts life in context for me. Grace is about having a relationship with God that causes me to act out of love, not out of anyone's sense anyone's rules about what is right and what's wrong. Think about how the Gospels show this in the life of Jesus. Here are some examples of the times Jesus refused to be constrained by the law of Moses. I thought of these. Maybe you'll think of some more. He cures the man with the crippled hand on the Sabbath. He touches lepers and makes them clean. He eats with Gentiles. He invites himself to dinner with Zacchaeus, the tax collector. He lets a prostitute wash his feet. He has a private conversation with a Samaritan woman by a well. He lets his disciples pluck a handful of grain from the fields on the Sabbath. And then he tells the shocked onlookers that the Sabbath was made for people. People weren't made for the Sabbath. Time and time again, Jesus shows himself to be a rule breaker, not a rule maker, when the choice is between acting in grace out of love rather than acting in fear of the law. And the stories Jesus tells illustrate this this kind of same way of being and acting in the world. Think of the father who abandons his dignity and righteous anger and rushes out to meet his prodigal son, who comes limping home after squandering his share of the family fortune, his share of the family fortune. Remember the owner of the vineyard who decides he'll pay everybody a full day's wage, even if they only work the last couple of hours. Or the shepherd, that shepherd who, against all reason, leaves his entire flock to fend for itself, while he searches for and finds the one lost sheep and carries it back to the fold on his shoulders. You know, all of these stories and more, and you can probably think of more, that Jesus uh, tells, all these stories contain characters who break the mold, who ignore the conventions of society, and act out of a, a generosity of heart that we can only call love. There's an old hymn that starts, there's a wideness in God's mercy like the wideness of the sea. 
and, and that, that wideness of God's mercy is grace. When grace touches a person's heart, then love cannot be contained by any rule. When God's grace touched the heart of that former uh, slave ship captain, John Henry Newton, even though slavery was legal, he became an, an abolitionist. He fought for an end to the slave trade in England, and he wrote that hymn that we know as Amazing Grace. When God's grace touched the heart of Lutheran pastor Dietrich Bonhoeffer in Nazi Germany, it led him to speak out against the state's evil policies, even though they were the law of the land. Cheap grace, he wrote, is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. Costly grace, he says, confronts us as a gracious call to follow Jesus. It comes as a word of forgiveness to the broken spirit and the contrite heart, and costly grace cost Bonhoeffer his life in a Nazi concentration camp. Costly grace is the gift Jesus extends to the rich young man. Go sell everything you have and give it to the poor. Then, come follow me. Costly grace is what Paul expected of Peter when the conservative Jewish faction showed up in Antioch from Jerusalem. Grace that might have cost him his relationship with James and the other church leaders back home. Grace that comes through faith in Jesus Christ, not from hiding behind the requirements of the law. So what might all of this mean for you and me today? I think reflecting on grace in this way can help us, well, one thing, it can help us better understand the meaning of scriptural passages like that last line in the Galatians text today. Let me read it to you. Paul says, So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ, and not by the works of the law, because by the works of the law no one will be justified. It's kind of hard to get your mind around the words. But I think what he's saying is this. Our relationship with God is made right through grace that comes through faith in Jesus, not by following a set of laws that define what is and isn't good behavior. Now, there's nothing wrong with following the Ten Commandments or any other rules of Christian living. Jesus himself said he had come not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. But simply living by the rules or falling back on the rules when we get into some kind of trouble like Peter did is not living a grace-filled life. Simply obeying the law left an empty place in that rich young man's heart. Simply obeying the law will leave an equally empty place in our hearts, and in our lives. So I'm thinking of Peter and why he did what he did. Maybe he was so afraid of being criticized by James and the others from Jerusalem that he forgot 
for a moment that once by a seashore, when he was just a simple fisherman, Jesus called out to him, follow me. When we allow ourselves to live out of grace, a love far greater than be can be contained in any rule, then we too will follow Jesus and make our corner of the world a place where forgiveness and mercy are more abundant than righteousness and indignation, where everyone gets a share of the wealth, whether they've earned it or not, where we are content to eat and drink at the same table as those people who are marginalized by our society, where we are willing to leave the comfort of the flock and seek out the lost. And we will do these things, not because we're following the rules of Christian living, but because living by grace has become our character. And when we live by grace, we are truly following Jesus. Amen.